Well, good morning. Welcome to those of you who are joining us on site, to those who are joining us online today. Um, this is the final week of Pastor 411. And uh, for the last three weeks, uh, as you know, we've had uh, Zach up here with me. And Zach has done a fantastic job. Can we just thank Zach for his, uh, his work? Woo. Yep. All right. Zach has set the bar high for uh, Pastor Andrew. Yeah, who's well, joining I'm me today? Not quite as high as you're not is. quite as high. Yeah, I know. I didn't want to make the <laughs> short, short joke. jokes, but you did it for me. Well, hang so fruit. thank you, appreciate that. Um, good, so it's good to have you with us here for this last time of doing this this season. Uh, why don't we just start, Andrew, by uh, what's happened in your life? What's been going on for you? People might not be aware of. Well, they're aware of the baby situation, right? Just yep. drop that one. Uh, we bought a new house on the West End, so I've yeah. managed to actually cut my commute time in half. That's good. I know, right? That's pretty good. I'm in single-digit commute time, so be mm-hmm. envious. Um, yep. And so I know you've been living that dream for a while, but yeah. I don't I have could, to deal I with the self. Work. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I could too, but it's a little farther. Yeah, so that's kind of new, and that's going on in our mm-hmm. life. I'm in a mild state of mourning right yeah. now. Yeah. Oh, what's, what's that about? Uh, well, I'm a Leafs fan. Oh, so. right. I'm in a constant state of mourning, but right. I'm in more present. I forgot about that. Yeah, I know. You know, <laughs> if they've taught us anything over the last, what, 60 years? It's faith. It's that there's always next year. It's always next year. There's yeah. always next yeah. year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ever-present hope. Ever-present hope. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm glad to have you here today. Yeah, it's good. Well, let's start, you know, with a very thought-provoking question right sure. now. So this one came in, and so... When Pastor Mark works out, there's a theme of opening questions here. Is it yeah. considered CrossFit? <laughs> this actually was a question that somebody submitted. Uh, yes, actually, it is considered CrossFit. But I don't do CrossFit pull-ups. I do real pull-ups. Yeah. Those who know know what I'm talking about. No cheating on the pull-ups on those. But here's an even more thought-provoking thing. Is that if Pastor Andrew Crossman does CrossFit, could we call that a double cross? I think so. That's what happens when you have two right. dads on the platform. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's a double dad, cross. Dad jokes. <laughs> dad jokes. Yeah. 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 Well, on a more serious note, we're going to transition into our first question yeah. today. Let's and this one is a little bit more awesome because it came in from a nine-year-old granddaughter. So we wanted to, mm-hmm. to spotlight that. We thought it was really cool. And the question is, where is heaven located? High above? In another galaxy? Far, far away? Right. Yeah. Let me tackle that. I'm going to answer this really, really briefly. The reason being is last year for Pastor 411, we focused upon heaven and hell. And so for those four weeks, there are a ton of questions on this. And this one actually came up during week one. So, uh, you know, if you want a more detailed answer to this, uh, whether you asked it or if you're just curious about it, you can go to westmeadows.org under listen, watch, and you can find the archive of all the messages there. So week one of last year's Pastor 411 is where we gave a more detailed answer to this. I'll give you a quick one right now, though, because uh, this is a valid question. When we look at the biblical language, we read the Bible, and we look at how heaven's discussed and described, it always has this, uh, this up idea. In the Old Testament, we read about the highest heavens. And in the New Testament, we read about Jesus ascending into heaven or being taken up to heaven. So it definitely gives this idea that it, it, it being above us. Um, that, that's the language that's used. But if we look at the meaning of the words that are associated with some of these different passages, uh, they don't speak of a geographical location. It's not like heaven is in Hawaii kind of thing. Um, it's not about a geographical location. It talks about more of a, like a realm, like, like a plane of existence. And obviously that would take some unpacking, which you can do by listening to the answer from last year. Uh, but 
you know, suffice to say for today, there is some mystery around it. it it's a hard concept for adults, you know, and kids to understand this idea of a heavenly realm. Uh, but the best answer I can probably give you for an immediate understanding is that heaven is where God is. And Jesus told us that if we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that the kingdom of heaven has come near. So that means that even now, if we have a relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ, even now we can experience a taste of heaven uh, because God lives with us in, in this time. And so while it's a place that we have not yet fully experienced, in a realm we're not fully existing in, we can actually experience a taste of it uh, even now. So. Good stuff. Yeah. yeah. And again, you can go back to the website to look at a more full answer on that one. But let me ask you a question, Andrew, sort of a, out of the gates here. We'll just get you... Do right into it. Right away. Uh, this is another good one. How can I discern God's will for my life? And the person who asked this even put a little tag on there about how can I know if I'm called to ministry? Mm. So how, how, can, how could you help somebody like that? Yeah. Uh, it's a combination of really good coffee interests and a beard. No, that's not the right answer. Um, it's a great question. I've obviously walked through this. And if you actually want to hear more of that story, it is a simple cost of a coffee. Right, mm -hmm. And so uh, I would be happy to share that with you. Um, but this was actually also covered by Pastor Mark in last summer's series, Misquoted. So again, check out the website if you want a more elongated answer to this. But the question of discerning here really boils down to a question of what's the one step of faith God is asking me to take next? Right, And so in all of those situations, is it ministry, job, whatever it is, what's the next step that God is calling me to? Because he often doesn't give us the full path. He'll give us the next step, maybe two in advance if we're, yeah, if we're really we're discerning, but not, not super long. And so you sense God's at work and he's moving in you and through you. And so you're trying to figure out what is that next step? What is that call in my life? And so three areas to look at to find clarity for discerning and calling Pretty simple. We'll walk right through them. First one is personal passion. So what are you passionate about? So when you accepted Jesus, what new desires, what, what things burned in your heart that you just wanted to do? So begin by thinking, since I've become a follower of Christ, what passions have emerged? Do these passions or skills have a place in the church, in ministry? Or maybe even it's beyond that. Maybe it's not just called to ministry, but it's not just a pastor thing, this idea of calling. It could be to be a teacher, a plumber, an accountant, maybe called to be a parent, or even a construction worker, service industry workers. All of these people are called. It's not just a us thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And then the second thing we want to look at is that God brings godly people into our lives to actually journey with us and call some of these things out. So who are the godly people in your life? that are also seeing something different in you that might be a direction you need to walk in. And so part of the Christian life includes this idea of his family, the church, where we are right now, the people around us, brothers and sisters that are going to hopefully encourage and build us up and call out the good things that they're seeing in us. So then in this section, ask the question, as I participate in God's family, who are those godly people? Who are the brothers and sisters in my life? And what are they actually calling out? And do they line up with those passions that I feel? The final spot is fruit. Not literal, like apples and oranges, but like results is another word for this. So fruit equals 
the times when God works through you for his kingdom purposes. That's what the idea of fruit is. So it's not just about sometimes when we make things happen, when results are beyond our ability is when we start to see this fruit happening. So in this situation, we need to recognize that God is the one blessing the work and it's not just us doing it because we're really good at it. So if God is blessing something, there's probably a good reason in your life to believe that the church and even the world needs more of that in it. And so that's where these three things start to converge. And then we have the evidence of God's will in our life. And so that's worth the step of faith that he's calling you to, that next step. And so once you see the where and how of God moving in your life, take that step of faith. Like take that step forward. Mm -hmm. And then once you move forward with that in faith, God will either confirm that or if it was too quick of a thing and you didn't fully discern it and there was only two out of three of those areas maybe, he'll correct that path for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and sometimes I found this with when people are asking what is God's will in my life and they're having a hard time discerning it. Not because they haven't got indications but because they're kind of standing flat foot in their lives and they're not, they're not active in pursuing different opportunities and, and moving in the direction that God seems to be encouraging them. And, and when we start moving and yeah. taking the steps of faith then we start to see the pieces fit and he can... He can more easily direct us when we're moving than make us move. Yeah. So we got to take that step of faith. Uh, so a quick recap of those questions, though. Somebody wants to be processing these things. Is, is what God-given passions do I have? What, who are the godly people that are encouraging and investing in me? Where do I see kingdom fruit being produced? And what, therefore, is the next step of faith that, uh, that I could take? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So good. And so with that, discerning God's will in our life kind of ties into some, like, what things do we follow? Like, mm-hmm. right? And so the next question that we're going to actually ask you, I guess, sure. instead yep. of me, so I don't talk the whole time, is yep. do we still have to obey the Old Testament laws? All of them. Right. That's a good question. Before I answer that, um, does anybody else hear that feedback? Is that just me? That's everybody? Okay. All right. Let's see if we can uh, figure that out. All right. Maybe there's too much pastor to... Close too much. together. Maybe that's what it is. I'll take a step. Aside. Zach was taller than you, so maybe it's like an alignment. <laughs> alignment thing, yeah. But we're up on mind, right? This is true. We'll see. <laughs> all right, back to the question. <laughs> Do we still have to obey all the Old Testament laws? Um, well, this is a good question, because if you ever tried reading the Bible like, like any other book where you kind of start at page one and then go back through, it's, um, you know, that's, that's kind of how we read these books often. We Not long before we get kind of bogged down in some details, because Genesis is pretty interesting, and... And Exodus has some great stories at the beginning, you know, Moses and the plagues, and it's just like the movie, <laughs> Charlton Heston in it, and so we can kind of see that happening. But then partway through Exodus, and then for the next three books afterwards, it's like law after law after law after law about, about goats and mold and lampstands, and I, I did inventory, I don't have any goats, molds, or lampstands, and so it raises the question, what do I do with all these rules that just seem to be completely disconnected from me? Well, when we look at all these books, uh, this, the first you know, books of the Bible referred to as the Pentateuch, the, the books of the law, we find that there's actually not just, not just 10 commandments, but there's actually 613 commands that we find in there. And that's where we get kind of bogged down. There's 365 kind of thou shalt nots, and then there's 248 thou shalts that we come across. And so it really begs this question, are, are Christians still under all 613 of those commands to abide? And, and sometimes the practical 
way of asking this question is, am I allowed to trim my sideburns? Can I get a tattoo? Can I borrow money at interest? And can I eat bacon? Or, or, or cheeseburgers. Right? Or cheeseburgers right. are, are really the practical outworking of the nature of this question. Um, and this isn't a new question. Actually, it's one that the church in Galatia asked Paul. And so we actually do have some, some uh, biblical verses that directly relate to this. And here's what Paul told him in, in Galatians 2.16. He says, we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Now, if that was all it was said, we could look at that and go, we can just disregard it. But that's not all that Paul said about this, because he also wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And in Romans, in Romans 7 in particular, we have to add to this, is that we can't just eliminate the law because it doesn't lead to righteousness with God, because in Romans 7, Paul also says, the law is holy, it's righteous, it's good. The law helps to show us our sin. He says also in verse 25 that the law reveals for us our need for Jesus. And so when we put this together, we can see that this is a very valid question, that the Old Testament still has a purpose, but we need some way to determine what parts are still binding and which parts are not. And so one suggestion that has been offered, that, and this is how I've come to view it and many others as well, is that we can look at all 613 of these laws and we can divide them into three categories. Uh, and the first category is we can divide these into ceremonial laws. These are laws that have to do with the priesthood, with sacrifices, with the temple. Uh, and those ones, we could say, are no longer binding. Because everything to do with the old sacrificial system, with the old temple system, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so, so those are no longer binding. If you, if you want to read more about that, half of the book of Hebrews is about that exact thing. About how the old system uh, fell short and is no longer binding upon upon uh, followers under the new covenant in Jesus. But then there's also the second category of civil laws pertaining to how to govern the nation of Israel as a nation under God. But again, we're not a theocracy. That's not the type of governance or the nation, the land that we live in. And so any of these theocratic laws uh, are not binding either. And Romans 13 uh, goes into more detail about obeying our secular leaders gives evidence that, that we don't have to be under theocracy. Romans 13 acknowledges that we're not under a theocracy, and therefore there are secular laws that we need to abide and secular leaders we need to follow. Well, that leaves us with the third category, with moral laws. Things like don't murder, don't steal, you know, theft, adultery, uh, assault, respecting family and neighbors. And these, are, these moral laws are quite often what we find and, and we think of when we think about the laws that come to mind for us. They, they um, are spoken of in the Ten Commandments. These are the types of laws that Jesus repeated in his own ministry. And these ones would still be binding upon us today. In fact, these moral laws quite often are the how we would live out the greatest commandment, which we find in Matthew 22, where Jesus said, this, he said this about the greatest commandment. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the laws and all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. And if we're looking for an answer to the question of how do we live out the greatest commandments, well, quite often we would look to the moral laws on how to do that. So, so this is a bit of a model I think helps make sense of some of these things. Um, it can still be a little bit complex because, you know, to take 613 laws and categorize them this way, it doesn't always get that easy. But let me end with an analogy 
that will hopefully make us understand how this practically works out in our lives. Now, we're at a time of year where a lot of people are finishing school and, and are going to be graduating. Up to this time in their life as a student, whether it's you know, high school or university, whatever it may be, uh, they are under two sets of laws. They are under the law of the land in which we live, the laws of Canada, of which we live, the laws of society, but they're also under the laws or under the requirements, graduation requirements of the school for which they're attending. Now, when you have an opportunity to graduate, when you've met all the requirements of graduation, you're then allowed to walk across the stage and they hand you a diploma, and that diploma states that you have met all the requirements and you are no longer obligated to the laws or to the requirements of the school. That has been fulfilled, that's over, but you still live in the land of, of Canada or whichever country you may live in. So what does this mean for us? Here's how we can understand this. Jesus Christ got a perfect score on every single graduation requirement of God's law. And through faith in Jesus, his report card becomes ours. That means that we are freed from having to earn our graduation on our own. We're free from doing that because his report card becomes ours. We are now free to therefore go and live the new life that we have in Jesus Christ, but we still have to live according to the laws of the nation of which we belong, such as don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, don't swindle, don't cheat, these sorts of things. Essentially, even though you've graduated from that one area where there were rules, where there were laws over, even though you've graduated from that one, you still need to go out and love your neighbor <laughs> and love God. You simply need to go forward, not having to any longer obey the civil and ceremonial laws that were no longer binding, but you still need to live by the laws or by the, um, uh, abide by God's eternal kingdom principles that are eternal. And those are more of the moral laws that we have. So, so through Christ, we can find fulfillment of the first two categories, but we are still bound to the final one that we live in. Very good, very good. Well, those two questions that we've received kind of talk to what kind of guides our life, how do we make decisions. And so this last one is kind of a compilation. It's not the last one, sorry. Uh, this next one is a compilation of questions that kind of came in along the same lines of, well, if these laws are there and we have to follow them. Yeah, being the last we, week, we're trying to fit a whole bunch into one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so if we don't follow those laws, then sin, right? And so we've had yeah. questions come in on sin, repentance, our conduct. And so we've kind of boiled it down into this question here, which says, does Paul say some believers will not be in heaven because of their sin? And then the follow-up to that is, I thought when we accept Jesus... All of our sins are forgiven. Right. Yeah. There's a number of questions that came in that show people have a, a good understanding of, of the gospel. Uh, as it says, uh, you know, I, I, thought, I thought when we accepted Jesus that all of our sins were forgiven. And, and yet people, when they open their Bibles and they especially look at some of, the readings of, some of the writings of Paul, they come across passages in these lists that, that give the sense that, wait a second, it seems like there's a catch or it seems like there's more to it. And so there's a number of different questions that had to do with that that we're trying to compile into this one. And so hopefully if you asked a question along that lines, part of our answer here will, uh, will touch on some of those questions that were submitted. So let's begin with this. Uh, yes, Paul's letters do include lists of activities, of lifestyles, of behaviors that are contrary to God's will for his people. And there's one passage we're going to look at in particular in a minute here 
that I think will help us understand this, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, but before we look at that, let's be clear on one thing. Let's be clear about who this passage is directed towards. And this passage we're going to look at, and all passages like it in Paul's writings, are directed towards the believers, towards the church, to those who have already made a profession of faith as Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, why is it important for us to establish that? Because sometimes these verses are taken out of context by people, and they're used to judge the world. And that is absolutely not what Paul's trying to do here. He's not trying to write a commentary upon the world. He's trying to write a commentary upon the church and upon people's conduct within the church. So we need to understand that that is the audience and and that is the specific context in which these passages exist. It's written to believers, to those who have agreed and have accepted that the word of God has authority and that by committing themselves to a relationship with Christ, that going hand in hand with that, they have agreed to live a life in accord with his will and his law as laid out in the word of God. So that's who it's written to, and that's the basis for which he writes these words we find in 1 Corinthians 6, for example, beginning in verse 9. He says, do you not know that wrongdoers, wrongdoers, those who are in the church who have made a profession of faith and yet are living wrongly, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So then, why is Paul saying this if we have that understanding, right? Mm-hmm. Is he providing a list of sins then that are, that are the ones that are beyond God's forgiveness here? And that's kind of how it sounds, right? It sounds like yeah. these are the things that are beyond as he says right here twice, these people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But that's not exactly what he's saying. The lesson here that he's trying to put forward here, the lesson in this list and in other lists that we find like this, what he's trying to put forward here is how we live needs to reflect our relationship with Jesus. That both faith and conduct matter. We are not free on one hand to claim faith and trust, and love in Jesus Christ, and then on the other hand, walk out the door and just do whatever we want. To just go out the door and do whatever our human nature, whatever our human desires and passions and cravings want to be fulfilled. Those those two things are inconsistent with each other, is what he's pointing out. And and this isn't just a, a principle between our relationship with us and God. This happens in other relationships we have as well. Like, for example, think of, uh, think of those of you who are married, your marriage. Like, when I married Nadine, I declared vows to her that I would live in a lifelong pledge of love and abiding uh, within that relationship and honoring her. That means I'm not free to just go do whatever I want. There are, there are practical implications of those vows, that commitment that I've made. I'm not free to just walk out the door one day and not come back and not call and only come back when I happen to want something. I'm not free to just just randomly leave and and go date other people. Even if I want to, I have to stop that. I have to control that because of the commitment I made. It doesn't mean that the desires for certain things automatically disappear, but it means that I now need to control those things because I've made a commitment, and that commitment has implications upon how I live my life. Now, if I don't live according to the vows that I made to Nadine, if I don't abide by those things, not only will she be upset, 
but she also can rightly call into question the sincerity of the vow I ever made in the first place. If my life does not match the vow that I made in the first place, she should and has every right to call into question the sincerity of the vow that I made, of the commitment that I profess to her right out of the gates. And so that's what's happening with Paul's list here. It's not that he's creating this comprehensive list of sins that are beyond God's ability to forgive. He's pointing out to the people in the church some common worldly behaviors that they're aware exist in, in the secular world of their day. He's sort of, he's looking out to the world going, you know, people who are not in the church, people, people who are not in the faith, people who have not made that profession, this is some of the things that they do and how they live their lives. So this isn't a, a complete comprehensive view, but he's saying they live their lives in a way that is incompatible with the profession that we have made as followers of Jesus Christ. It's also like worth noting here the diversity of sins mm-hmm. that are outlined in Paul's passage here and in many of the lists that Paul gives. He goes from drunkenness to sexual sin to idolatry. And in our mind, we like to rank sins as more severe, less severe, like... Tolerable. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Even permissible at times, right? Like, it's like, oh, well, that one I can kind of be okay with as long as I don't hit that level, mm-hmm. right? It's like, even in my relationship with Jacqueline, I'd be less upset if she was a little bit greedy, you know, took three fries off what? my plate instead of, like, just the one she asked for. It's French right? fries. Yeah, Andrew doesn't share food. That's part of marriage yeah. prep. <laughs> we talk about French fries. Yeah, right? Right? So yeah. if she was a little bit greedy on that side of things versus if she was to commit adultery, Right? Like, I would probably rank that a little bit higher. And we tend to rank sin based on the impact in our lives or our offense level to a certain act or whatever is happening. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that's why on this list that some people tend to focus in on the word homosexuality, for example, more than they're going to focus in on the example of swindlers. Right. Yeah, because they're going to rank those at two very, very different levels. Yeah. And, you know, over the past four weeks, uh, we've probably received about 40 questions that have come in. Um, and a a good percentage of them actually have to do with this question around alternative lifestyles and homosexuality. And and so we do want to say something briefly on it before we're finished, but at the same time, we don't want to dedicate a long amount of time to it, not because it doesn't matter, but because when we talk about some of these lifestyle issues, I I, I refer to these quite often as, as kitchen table conversations, not necessarily pulpit conversations. The reason being is that some of these topics require a dialogue, to go on, as opposed to this format where it's just like one person talking to people. And I'd rather have these through a, through a dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not because it doesn't matter, it's not because we don't have something to say about it, it's just because this format isn't ideal to discuss certain things. Um, but for today's purposes, and because so many questions on this came in, a couple things we want to say about it is, is this, is that based upon the Word of God, based upon the nature of how He created humanity, based upon what we see as being the biblical plan for family and marriage, that this is a lifestyle that we would understand to be contrary to God's will for people. But to properly understand the outworkings of that, how to relate to people, how to express this, explain it, how to minister, witness, and and befriend people, we need to understand this in the context of how it's spoken of in the Bible, which is where the dialogue needs to come in. And, and understand the context even in which it's used in this particular passage. Yeah. And while we may mentally rank these sins at different levels, that's not Paul's purpose here in this list. He's not creating a hierarchy of sin. All of these sins make the same list mm-hmm. because they equally offend God. 
right? Our understanding of sin and why we need salvation is because all sin prevents us from entering into relationship with God. It separates us from him no matter what it is. The outcomes in our lives and how that affects us here, the consequences can be different, but no matter what sin it is, it separates us from God. And so how are they possibly equal? Well, it's symptomatic actually of a greater sin out there. Yeah, so we, we have a tendency to rank these things based on how they impact us and how offended we are by these different words. Yep. Um, but when we look at it from, from God's perspective, all of these sins are actually symptomatic of a greater sin. And, and here's how we can understand that. Is that, let's start off with this, is that God's forgiveness is granted to anybody, any person, any sin that a person has ever committed is forgiven through a repentant heart that is brought to that point through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that means that there really is nothing that a person can do. There's nothing, there's no way you can out-sin God. There's no way that you can do something so heinous or so repeatedly that, that it out-sins God's grace if you come to him with a repentant heart through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. However, there's one thing God can't forgive. The one thing can't God, forgive, God can't forgive is, is regardless of what the sin is, is they can't, God can't forgive when somebody embraces sin. When somebody gives up the battle, when somebody gives up trying to resist and trying to become more Christ-like, when they simply decide to embrace sin, ignoring God's prompting, there's not much left that he can do because the heart isn't contrite, the heart isn't repentant. And this is what we read about in, in, in Matthew chapter 12 when it says every single sin, every slander can be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. And that's what that means, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is, is ignoring, resisting, just turning down the volume on the conviction of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul's list point out to us this, is that when you make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us and among us. And part of his job is to counsel and to convict And if we are choosing to live in a way that is contrary to God's will, we are therefore ignoring that conviction and that counsel that the Holy Spirit is trying to give us. And if that's what we're doing, we will not be repentant. And if we're not repentant, we can't be forgiven. And therefore, that's the one sin that God can't forgive. And so if we put this all together, what we end up finding is that faith and conduct both matter. That if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, and as your Lord, then your conduct has to follow suit with that profession. Yeah, this doesn't mean, though, that we're never going to be tempted, that we'll never struggle, that we'll never stumble in these things, but, you know, we will be able to find final forgiveness when we turn. It's that repentant heart. It doesn't mean that we can't claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior on the one hand, you know, and then embrace a lifestyle contrary to it on the other. So if you were to embrace that sinful lifestyle with no repentance in your heart, then you can't claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior because there's no conduct that matches that profession of faith in your life. So if we do that, Paul and God, rightly so, are going to question the sincerity of that vow, that profession of faith in Jesus Christ that we've made and the commitment we've made to God. Right. And so that's what these passages are about. Yeah. It's about Paul saying, if you've made this profession of faith, but your conduct is completely living as the world, I got a question in the vow. Yeah. Just, just like the example of our marriages, you know, there's implications of the vows and the commitments that we make. Yeah. 
And now let's not pretend that this is easy by any means. This is extremely hard for us all to do. Um, all of us face temptations. All of us face some sort of human desires that, that will lead us, want to lead us in a different direction. And, and we're called to live you know, in resistance to those things. And, and that's hard also because in order to live according to God's will and way and word, so often it requires us to live in a countercultural pattern, countercultural to how the world says things should go. And when we answer the call that Jesus makes upon our lives, it's not easy because it calls us to, to accept God's absolute truth and to resist those sin natures. And at the same time, while you're trying to wage that battle within yourself, you have an enemy that comes along and the enemy says, don't deny yourself. If you deny yourself, if you, if you deny the wisdom of the world that would make things comfortable, if you deny that, you're going to be miserable. If you deny that, you're, you're going to look like a fool to other people. And these sorts of temptations and thoughts come along as we're trying to have these battles because the enemy wants to keep you from experiencing the goodness that God has in store for us. Because it's not just about a call to avoid things. You see, when we answer the call to, to take up our cross and to, to resist these things, it's not just that we give up things by making that commitment to Jesus Christ. We also gain so many more things. We gain so much more because it comes with a promise. And again, thinking back to the example of our analogy of marriage. See, yes, there are things that I can't do because I've made a commitment that I want to remain faithful to with my wife. So there is that category. But there's also things that I can do. There's things that I have received. For example, I can call Nadine my wife. Nobody else can do that. I gain the right to do that. I gain somebody who will share their life with me for all the days that we have together, that is on the same team with me, that is working towards the same purposes and goals and, and health and fulfillment and, and all the rewarding nature. I have somebody that I can share incredible intimacy with. I can spend the rest of my life, 27 years and counting, with this one person who loves me, who cares for me, who supports me, who encourages me, and who helps me through the tough times. I gain all of that because of the commitment. So it's not just about the things that we give up. It's about so much that we gain in the process as well. And, and this is actually the sentiment that Paul ends with in this particular passage we're looking at. He ends with the same sentiment. That before a person was a follower of Christ, before they had made that profession of faith, they had these labels attached to them. The labels of thief and adulterer and drunkard. Those are the labels that was attached to them before they made that profession of faith. But then he says in verse 11, writing in the past tense, he says these old labels have now been removed when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Because verse 11 it says, what, that's what some of you were, referring to these labels. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit of God. He's saying that's what you were, but now you are known by the name of righteous. You are known by the name of the one who is redeemed, the one who is forgiven, the one who is beloved. You are not just named by those things. You also receive incredible power with the presence of God working through you. You receive guidance as the Holy Spirit convicts and guides you. You receive incredible joys. You live your life now in fellowship with Christ and the family of God within the body. And you receive fulfillment as all these things come together every day in your life. You see, a person inherits the kingdom of God by faith in the grace of Jesus Christ alone. His work on our behalf. However, faith without works is dead. And faith without godly conduct to match it 
is suspicious, it's, it's suspect. And so, if you're a professing follower of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, mm-hmm. keep up the fight against sin and that deception of Satan. Do not embrace that life that is contrary to the word of God when it gets hard, because that contradicts the commitment that you've actually made. But know who you are in Jesus Christ and strive to live according to his will. And, and when you're able to do that, part of that is being able to share that, that joy, that, that those things that you gain with the world. Absolutely. So hopefully this gives some understanding of some of the questions that came in. And maybe as we're discussing this, there's a particular topic or a question that it sparks within you. Please let us know, because we would love to have some of these kitchen, converse, kitchen table conversations. Absolutely. Uh, you know, whether it's over the phone or a cup of coffee or literally your kitchen table. We would love to continue dialogue on some of these things as, uh, as we move forward. Let, let's, uh, let, let's move to one more question here that's actually related to this. Mm-hmm. We can actually kind of build upon what we just talked about with, uh, with one more question here, and then I think we'll be, uh, we'll be done for today. And so here, here's this question, uh, which is in reference to another uh, letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, but the second letter this time in uh, chapter 6, verse 14. And the question is this. In what relationships, in what ways, should we not be unequally yoked mm. with people? Yeah. 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 So this is a... A good question. And the first thing that we want to touch on is this terminology of, of yoked. So if you're a gymnast, yoked, right, uh, is not what we're talking about here. Um, it's wording that's actually found originally in the, the King James and many other translations as well. But some of them have used the term to bring it into more understandable language for those of us that maybe don't farm today. Uh, bound is the word that they use to convey this concept. So being bound to somebody. And so a yoke which is a wooden structure that would have been put around an ox's neck, shoulders kind of deal. And they would walk forward, but they would also have the ability to attach it to another ox to be able to plow the field. And they would work in tandem. They would work together. They would share the load. And then they would be able to accomplish a greater purpose or a greater goal in a quicker amount of time and they're working as a team, so... There's it's, a great benefit to being yoked together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So being yoked is, is really good. And so, but the catch is, if you used unequal animals, one would be stronger, and so the stronger one would move along, and the weaker one's kind of here, and so you can kind of see how you're going to end up going in circles, or if this one's stronger, you're going to end up going like this, yeah. right? And so you're going to keep going in circles. You're not going to complete the task that you've been given, and... That's the result of being unequally yoked. And so that same concept is found here in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. But it's a teaching not on farming, but on Christian living. And so this is what it says in this verse. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? So Paul writes here, to address those around us, those immediate relationships, those that have influenced the close ones in our life. That's what, who we're being unequally yoked with or shouldn't be unequally yoked with. That's what Paul is writing about. We are still called to do the Great Commission and reach unbelievers, so that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying sever every relationship with non-Christians. That's not the point here. This is about those constant connections in your life, those people that have influence over you. So let's use a team analogy to maybe get this. So say you're on a team and you don't have the same knowledge. 
and you don't have the same purpose in mind, and you're not implementing the same strategy, it's probably going to end up with a bad result, like the Leafs. Like the Leafs last Yeah, exactly. I beat yeah. you to it. See, it's easier when I say it to myself, and it like doesn't hurt as much. Bad results. Yes, bad results, right? And so not the results you want. But if you're on a team and you have this shared knowledge, the same purpose, the same strategy, yeah. and you're implementing that strategy, and you're working together, and you're sharing the load, it equals in a good result, like Who, the... Yeah, who's that sound like? Like the Oilers. Like the Oilers. Yeah, go Flames. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> And so a good result will happen if those things, that's the idea of being not the same knowledge, unequally yoked, same knowledge, equally yoked. So the same can be applied here by Paul. It's the key, constant, influential relationships in our lives where if we're unequal, then we will not do the best that we can in that moment. And at worst, we might actually start to move away from our relationship with God in those moments. So who we allow to hold these influential places and be these influential relationships in our life is super critical. So Paul is addressing a huge issue here. Yeah. yeah. But it has been said, and this is super helpful if you're trying to think about if you're unequally yoked, show me the five closest relationships and I will show you who you are and where you are going. Right? right? And so I'll say it again. Show me your five closest relationships, so those key influential constant ones, and I'll show you who you are and where you're going. So in the world, though, we, we have coworkers around us. We have classmates. We have friends. We even have teammates who are unbelievers. They have some influence in our life. How can we possibly avoid all these relationships? Well, Paul's not saying to sever these ones because then we would abandon the Great Commission and just hang out with Christians. We'd be insular and not accomplish our mission. What he is saying is be discerning before we hitch our wagon to a significant relationship. So, for example, you probably can't pick your coworkers, but you could pick who your business partner is in your life. You probably don't get to decide who your classmates are going to be, but you sh typically can choose who your spouse is going to be. Right? And there's other relationships along the way, too, that you can have this this or that analogy with. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to really quickly pick up on that last one you mentioned, because um, we talked a bit last week about, about Christian dating. Mm -hmm. and, this, and this follows suit there, too. You know, people have asked uh, me recently, and I'm sure you over the past as well, you know, should Christians date non-Christians? Because sometimes it starts out as friendships, and, and as you said, we're going to have friends with Christians and non-Christians. But then if, if things start to progress and it turns into a dating situation, and, you know, if dating is geared towards eventually getting married, it, you know, should we even start that, you know, what happens? And, and this is, this is a, just a tough real-life question about being unequally yoked with somebody that we're, we're dating. And, and I, I, I resist saying that, you know, that there should be an absolute ban upon this because when I started dating Nadine, she wasn't a Christian. Um, and we started dating as, as things got more and more serious, Fortunately, um, through the influence of, of my family and other people, she started coming to church and she made that profession of faith and, and she was a believer before we got married. Uh, so it worked out in that scenario and, and I've seen it work in other situations as well. Um, but it's, it's, it's dangerous. It is risky, right? Uh, if we understand that the goal, you know, especially people who are at a young adults and, and going forward, the primary purpose of dating is to find a life partner. Mm -hmm. Now, if your family allows you to date when you're like 16, you know, there's you know, different 
ways that that's defined, different ways that can happen. You know, you know, groups of people who go to movies together and stuff can sometimes be defined as dating. And, and dating can actually have a purpose when you're 16. Yeah. If you're a super awkward 16-year-old boy, mm -hmm. you need to learn how to talk to girls. Yeah. So, um, so there are some boys who need to learn how to talk to girls when they're, when they're younger yeah. before they start seriously dating. I definitely understand that and know that. No? Youth pastor, yeah. get it. Yeah. But, but anyways, here, here's, here's why it's risky. Uh, I have seen some couples who are unequally yoked in this term, in the, in the spiritual sense, who have gotten married and they have made it work. But it's very rare that I've seen them make it work. And it absolutely imposes limitations upon their relationship because there's this one big component of the relationship, their, their participation in church and faith, uh, that, that they're not seeing eye to eye on. It, it's not causing conflict. Um, they found a way to avoid conflict, but they're not sharing that in, in a way that they really ideally should be. So it, it's, it's not ideal, but they make it function. However, for every relationship that I'm aware of where I've seen somebody make it function, I can tell you about 20 or more where it didn't work. Uh, where it didn't work, where, where this one issue led to incredible division in their marriage, uh, was the number one source of conflict and tension and marital unhappiness. And quite often, these relationships end in divorce. That, that tends to be the trajectory that they're on. Because all these other areas line up, but a person's spiritual life is not an insignificant or secondary aspect of who they are. Mm -hmm. um, and if a person's not yoked on that issue, it, it, it is risky to happen. And so I, I hesitate to say you can't date a non-Christian because from my own example, you know, through that influence, a person became a Christian. But I got to tell you this, if you head down that road as it gets more and more serious as time passes and you start heading towards marriage, it, it is risky. Uh, and it could lead to a big... Um, big hindrance to your marital success and marital happiness, and so it, it, it can be dangerous. Uh, so let's summarize all that. Uh, so when it comes to those who are closest to us, yeah. when it comes to those who are going to have these most influential relationships in our lives, here are some questions that we, we can be mindful of, and then we'll wrap up and close and go to prayer and be done. Number one, are they the same mindset? Are they the same morals of the same faith as me? Uh, if not, we want to be careful maybe how, how serious a relationship we get into. Um, will they have influence over how I act and make decisions? This is maybe a question for maybe a business partner or something. You know, will their business practices differ from mine? Because they're going to have influence on my business, and so is that going to change how I act or, or how I make decisions? Will they contradict or will they reinforce my Christian witness to the world? Uh, will people look at us and be like, you guys are oil and, you know, oil and water. I just, you know, I'm seeing two mixed messages here, even though you're a partnership, apparently. Uh, will they help me become more Christ-like, or will they lead me in a different direction? You know, all these questions help us to answer the question, you know, are we equally yoked, or are we not? So, um, so we will have people in our lives who are not of the same faith and persuasion as us, but there is uh, sometimes limitations to those relationships that we have. So, uh, Andrew, we've covered a lot of territory today, and uh, the clock on the wall says that we have used our minutes and our words, and just like two extra ones. <laughs> yeah, just two extra ones. So that's not too bad. Yeah. Um, so I want to wrap up today and wrap up this Pastor 401 series for this season and, um, and ask you to pray for us. Certainly. Pray, pray with me. God, we come before you recognizing just your goodness to us, your ability to, to shape and mold us through the words of Scripture and through teaching, 
and through the inner workings of the Holy Spirit. And God, today we've talked a lot about conduct and laws and relationships and how should we or shouldn't we act. And God, we talked about discernment, so help us discern in our lives those relationships we should, we should press into, those relationships we should maybe pull a bit away from. Help us to take a, a real true assessment of that this week. Help us also to focus in on, on that ability that we have to share what we gain with the world, that we may be those who invite others to experience new life with you because we gain so much more when we make that profession. We gain a relationship with you and that trumps everything and may we share that more and more with the world. As we go about our weeks this week, continue to influence us, continue to fill us with the Holy Spirit so that that is ever present in our mind. God, we love you. We pray these things in your holy, mighty name. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for those who are with us online and on site here today. Just want to remind you uh, of two things. Number one, if there's anything that you want to talk about or pray about when the service is over here, please feel free to come forward. Andrew and I will be here to, to meet with you and to pray with you. And secondly, uh, next week we're back to more of a regular format for our services. Uh, but even though it's a long weekend, please, please come and join us because it's a special service as we're going to be doing our installation service for Pastor Andrew and Pastor Athena. And we'd love for you to participate uh, online if that's all you're able to do, but it would be great to have you here present with us um, to celebrate with them. And I can guarantee you some Shelly cake after the service. Right, Shelly? Right. You're on the hook now. That's how we inform the staff of things. So, good. So thank you for being with us today. Uh, we will see you again next week.